0: Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Livock and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work
1: and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman podcast was born.
0: Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we centre and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life.
1: Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently.
0: Today on the podcast, we are discussing depression and anxiety. What makes depression and anxiety clinical? How do these common mental health conditions manifest for neurodivergent women and how can you manage or treat anxiety and depression?
1: So depression and anxiety obviously come from the underlying emotions of sadness and fear, which of course are very normal emotions every single person experiences throughout their life. And I think, you know, there's a little bit of a propensity to perhaps feel like oh everyone's you know got mental health issues nowadays or everyone feels depressed or everyone feels anxious um and to a degree that's actually not wrong in the sense that I feel like as a global community we're all waking up to the fact that we've been over functioning for literal decades so just putting that aside for a moment (laughs) um what Monique and I really want to talk about today though is clinical depression and clinical levels of anxiety And I guess what separates uh, a clinical mental health condition versus just your normal kind of ups and downs, feeling anxious, feeling stressed about things is the duration. So how long is it actually lasting for? How long are these mood states lasting for? The intensity. So to what degree are you experiencing this? So, with that one, I usually like to use a 1 to 10 scale, you know, just as a little uh, exemplifier. So, you know, for example, with anxiety, if you feel like every time you get anxious it is consistently at a 7 or above, then that's pretty intense. Whereas if you experience uh, anxiety frequently but maybe it's a lower level like a two or a three then that's much more manageable right so duration how long are you experiencing it for intensity how strong is that feeling how intense it is and frequency how often are you experiencing this and they're really the kind of clinical markers of what separates something from a quote-unquote normal experience to a diagnosable mental health condition
0: so, the other thing that we look for uh, as clinicians is how much are these mood states or emotions impacting your day to day life functioning, um, your enjoyment of life, your quality of life, your overall level of well being? And usually we're looking at how much they're functioning, how you are working in the workplace, are you able to go to school and study? Um, is it impacting your relationships at home with friendships, uh, romantic relationships, that sort of thing as to whether or not, uh, it's to a clinical level. Some of the features that we look at, uh, for example, with depression is feeling depressed mood. So feeling low or sad most of the time, uh, for a period of two weeks or more feeling a loss of interest or pleasure in most activities, having changes in your appetite. So loss of appetite or increased appetite, changes in sleep, fatigue and loss of energy, difficulties with concentration or memory that are not usual for you and feelings of worthlessness or excessive guilt about things. And we're looking at people slowing down physically and mentally as well. So we're also looking for are these symptoms uh, or experiences also being caused by a medical condition or substance use? So that's something that we're looking at in terms of ruling in or out clinical depression. And sometimes depression can manifest instead of sad or depressed mood as anger or irritability as well. So if you're Mm -hmm. noticing increased anger or irritability, that might be a bit of a flag that something's going on for you. What we generally look for with anxiety is a constant cognitive worry. So lots of thoughts going through your head that you feel that you have difficulty controlling um, and worries about things even when there is no specific threat actually present or the worry is out of proportion to the actual risk of, you know, something that could go wrong. Feelings of anxiety, so physical feelings uh, of fear or physical symptoms of anxiety, such as breathing changes, sweating, feeling hot, flushed, feeling nauseous in your stomach, feelings of restlessness. And again, anxiety can also impact someone's concentration. So making it harder to think, it can make people more irritable, it can affect people's sleep and it can manifest as muscle tension as well. And so we're wanting that constant worry to be around every day, uh, most days for over six months. Yeah.
1: Thanks for taking us through those Monique. I actually think it's really important for people in the general public to know what the diagnostic criteria are for certain things um, because, you know, I feel like, If we actually sharing, um, accurate information, it helps people better work out what is going on for them. And, you know, just as a little bit of an aside, I think everyone is very aware at the moment how clogged up the, you know, mental health care system is. Certainly in Australia, I assume it's the same all over the world and other places as well. So having the general public know, you know, okay, these are actually the criteria for anxiety, for depression, can help you better assess what's going on for yourself.
0: The other thing with anxiety. Anxiety is that anxiety can manifest in many different types of worries. Um, so, someone can be anxious about general day to day things like what's going on for them at work, in their personal relationships, uh, weather events, driving, uh, the health. And sometimes anxiety can change form um, over a person's lifetime and, and sort of jump from thing to thing that the person's worried or preoccupied about. There are lots of different types of anxiety uh, clinical diagnoses, and that's where you would go to a professional to help sort of narrow down what's going on for you in terms of anxiety with what subtype you have going on.
1: Yeah. And all those subtypes of anxiety are really a manifestation of different things your brain is trying to protect you from, right? Um, Depending on your life situation, your core beliefs, your life history, who you are, your brain, if you're kind of an anxious person, might gravitate towards, you know, this thing or that thing. But it really all stems back to this idea that anxiety is a really important and helpful emotion that we experience Um, on kind of a self protection level. It's obviously there to let us know that something could be dangerous and get us to try and avoid that thing when we're going into that fight, flight, or freeze mode, right? Trying to get us to run away, out, fight, or shut down. But even at a less intense level, Anxiety is a really great problem-solving strategy because it forces us, whether we want to or not, to imagine all the possible things that could go wrong and to try and come up with solutions for each of those things. If the problem is a solvable problem, then that's great, (laughs) That's actually really clever. So, you know, I think when we're talking about mental health conditions, clinical levels of these things... As we've mentioned, we're really talking about when it's getting to a level that is no longer functional for you, that is happening all the time at an intensity that's really uncomfortable for a really long period of time. So that's kind of where anxiety comes from though. But depression is something that it can be a little bit harder for people to kind of intuitively understand what's the purpose of depression? Why do we experience depression? Similar to anxiety though, it is a helpful strategy at lower levels. Depression gets us to conserve energy. Depression gets us to retreat when we're exhausted. Depression forces our body to kind of shut down for that time period. It's kind of like an extended freeze state emotion where when we're thinking about fight, flight and freeze, um, as stress responses. Fight and flight are problem-solving responses. They're when our body and our mind thinks that we can avoid, escape, or outfight the problem. Freeze is when our body's like, nah, I don't really think that we've got this. So, <laughs> let's just try and shut down for a little while and hope that we can outlast the problem. So, that's what depression is trying to do. It's basically your body trying to help you outlast the problem.
0: Yeah, and and often for people with depression, um, it's almost as though their body is trying to numb things down. So when life is overwhelming or things – feel unbearable. Part of depression is the numbing down of your emotions and flattening down things. And yeah, it does flatten down the enjoyable things, but it's also designed to help flatten down the unbearable things so that you can try to cope and get through day-to-day life and, and hang on and outlast. And yeah, often I think, No one really enjoys or (laughs) wants to be depressed or anxious. Uh, It's very uncomfortable, especially if you're experiencing it for a long time. But uh, yeah, often I'll I'll say to people, look, actually anxiety is a body genuinely thinking that it's helping us it's going Mm. hey like watch out for this um depression is yes sometimes our body again genuinely going oh you know we better conserve some energy here let's let's go down into that freeze it's our body actually doing what it thinks is best we may not agree (laughs) we may think what are you doing what's going on like surely there's a better way to cope with you know things than this because this feels like it sucks but yeah our body is genuinely really trying to do the best that it can and from its viewpoint which is millions of years old it comes from a lot of evolutionary responses it genuinely thinks it's like yeah i'm doing a great job
1: yeah (laughs) And I wonder, too, if the way that our society is set up currently, um, not only, you know, what's expected of us day to day in terms of functioning, but also the extreme um, focus, I guess, or um, putting on a pedestal of positive emotions, right? You always have to be happy. You know, you've got to be feeling good all the time. There's often no space to feel negative emotions. And If we actually listen to our body when it's starting to tell us, hey, we actually need to conserve a little bit of energy here or things are a little bit overwhelming and I need to numb all this down for a little bit, I think if we stopped sometimes and listened to that and did what our body was asking us, It could not all the time, of course, but a lot of the time it could potentially prevent that more longer term depression, burnout, exhaustion that's come from ignoring what our body's trying to tell us until it gets to a point where our body's like, well, I've actually been around, you know, talking about our older evolutionary parts of our brain. I've actually been around for a lot longer than you. So I'm going to pull rank right now. And now we're in a significant depression.
0: Yeah, and I think too that, you know, different cultures uh, across the world uh, and it through different times in history, probably had different expectations around what are normal experiences. And there probably was in the past like a lesser expectation of that unrealistic expectation of, yep, life's going to be good 100% of the time. You have to be happy and only experience positive emotions. Otherwise, you're not quote unquote successful in life.
1: Yeah, I really feel strongly that increasing our distress tolerance, our ability to actually sit with and experience and tolerate negative emotional states has such a positive long-term impact on the marathon that is life, right? Rather than constantly chasing towards those kind of really high, exciting, happy feelings.
0: And everything I think has a season. Um, If we look to nature and the seasons and we are quite disconnected from nature, Uh, the majority of us, you know, live in cities and in urban environments, but in nature, it's not go, go, go all the time. You know, there's spring where things are awakening, things are starting to unfurl, the energy's gathering. In summer, it's, you know, full pace ahead, go, 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 let's get all this done. Let's get, you know, the veggies planted. We've got to do everything now. Autumn, you're starting to slow down and gather the fruits of the harvest and prepare for winter. And in winter, you are supposed to actually stop. You're supposed to not do much, rest, conserve energy, um, and experience that stillness how many of us in our modern day-to-day lives, you know, with being disconnected from nature and the seasons, how many of us get to experience that these days? Because, you know, we're working nine to five, five days a week for all the different seasons of the year and we are at this constant go, go, go and busyness. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, that can definitely contribute to not having the space to sit with things and learn that, emotional tolerance and distress tolerance because we're busy all the time. So with talking about anxiety and depression in this episode, the reason why Michelle and I wanted to focus an episode on this topic is because so many of our neurodivergent clients that we work with come in with anxiety and depression as well as their experience of being neurodivergent. So looking at the research and the data, we found that the rates of anxiety and depression in neurodivergent children and adults is much higher than that of neurotypical children and adults. So, some of the statistics were showing that, for example, with uh, ADHD, that anxiety was experienced by up to 55% of people with ADHD. And with autism, there are some studies showing that for children and adults, up to 70 to 80% of people on the autism spectrum also experience anxiety and depression and other comorbid mental health conditions.
1: And people who have other forms of neurodivergence as well, so like psychosis, bipolar, we know that rates of anxiety, depression, mood issues are really high um, in those kind of conditions or those neurodivergences. It's really interesting actually. Uh, research actually shows that people who have a more introverted or a higher sensitivity nervous system, regardless of whether or not you're on the spectrum or ADHD or, you know, another diagnosable uh, neurotype or neurodivergence, people who have have that kind of more inward-facing nervous system brain setup, tend to experience much higher rates of negative emotion than people who have a more externally focused nervous system, so extroverts, lower sensitivity, lower sensitivity to their environment. So for ADHDers, uh, the experience of anxiety and depression tends to be higher, well, anxiety in particular, um, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, the anxiety side of it, if we're thinking kind of biological, is really impacted by that really fast-paced thinking speed. So, um, thoughts tending to go from zero to 100 in, you know, zero seconds where, you know, you might think, oh, what if this and then all of a sudden you're at that kind of worst possible, worst case scenario. So, a lot of ADHDs who experience anxiety uh, have a really hard time managing or controlling their internal thought processes and it's interesting because, you know, one of the tenets of CBT, so cognitive behaviour therapy, has to do with identifying your thoughts and kind of changing your thoughts to change how you feel about something. A lot of ADHDers have a hard time with that because they say, well, I can't catch the thought <laughs> quick enough to change it before I'm you know, already in that place. And that's totally understandable. You can kind of retroactively think about that thought and work on it, but those really fast paced thoughts have a big impact on that. The other thing for ADHD is tends to be really strong experience of emotion. So particularly ADHD is who have combined types, so the inattentive type and hyperactive impulsive type. So in childhood, one of the questions I often ask will be, does this child, have really big feelings, whether they're positive or negative. And for most combined type ADHDs, the answer is yes. <laughs> um, and that's obviously a strength and a weakness as well. And then the last thing there for ADHD is, it has to do a little bit with our dopamine production. And this is a little bit of that crossover between biology and what's kind of going on in your environment and how your life is structured. Um, But because ADHD is so reliant on the fun thing happening to get that release of dopamine, right? Dopamine, as we've talked about before, is it really, you know, that kind of feel-good neurochemical that drives us towards action. We get a kick of it when we get something that we want. For neurotypical people, they get dopamine just in anticipation of future rewards um, or, you know, thinking that something is a good thing to do. Whereas people who are ADHD is really only get that kick when the good thing is happening. So if you're an ADHD and your life is structured in a way that you don't really have many, you know, quote unquote, good things happening, um, maybe you're not doing what you really want to be doing. Maybe your life feels like one really long chore, then that's really hard for your brain to actually produce dopamine naturally. So that can lead to a lowered mood state as well.
0: Yeah, and I wonder if uh, the pandemic potentially contributed to that for mm-hmm. people, you know, because of not being able to go out and do those enjoyable things and get that dopamine from socialising and going out and doing fun stuff. Yeah, that's such a great point. I uh, I totally agree. I think that that would probably have been a major contributor. Mm. So with autism uh, and looking at like a higher rate of anxiety and depression being really common uh, with autistic people digging down into some of the reasons for that from a biological perspective. I do think uh, having that increased sensitivity of the nervous system and the hyper-connected brain would have something to do with having an increased sensitivity to threat perception in your environment um, so if you are very sensitive to noise, to movement, to smells, uh, to someone walking up behind you, um, to details in your environment, uh, then you're going to pick up on potentially a lot more potential threat cues. Uh, which are going to fire off your amygdala and start that fight, flight, or freeze cascade. So, yeah, oftentimes there is that sensory biological component uh, in terms of anxiety for people on the spectrum. Um, there can be a genetic component to developing anxiety and depression as well. And then I think as well, having uh, potentially a bit more of a black and white, all or nothing thinking system in the brain as well can mean that when things happen uh, for you in your life, really seeing it in terms of extremes, like all or nothing, and sometimes having difficulty seeing the whole picture or the bigger picture can make things more difficult in terms of, yeah, feeling really anxious about something that's happening or feeling depressed um, because of that cognitive style of coping with things.
1: Yeah, I think the cognitive element of it is quite huge uh, for people on the spectrum. And the biggest kind of component of that that I often find is, exactly as you mentioned, Monique, that really kind of detail focus, which feeds into that sort of black and white thinking as well. Um, And I think we've talked about this, previously on the podcast, this idea of, you know, how blueprints of experiences get laid down in the brains of neurotypical people versus autistic individuals. But just to kind of really briefly recap, for a neurotypical person, because neurotypicals tend to be uh, more focused on kind of Generalizations, so big picture general things um blueprints tend to be of you know of experiences so i've had this thing happen my brain is now laying down a little bit of a map of what to expect in this situation blueprints tend to be general which comes at the expense of the details, but it means that neurotypical people usually have some sort of good enough blueprint that will enable them to make predictions about, you know, new experiences that they might be going into. So the example that I often use is kind of sleeping away from home, right? Um, obviously lots of different particular ways that we could sleep away from home, but for a neurotypical person, once they've slept away from home once, that's a general blueprint for an individual on the spectrum because Autistic brains are so much better at identifying and being aware of and attuned to all the multiple details in things. Um, Blueprints tend to be really highly specific. So um, sleeping at Emily's house in winter. Right, And then now every other sleep away from home experience is a brand new experience because it is essentially don't have the generalized blueprint for that. So that detail focus obviously is a major strength of the autistic brain. But I find that it tends to be one of the biggest contributors to anxiety as well, because if you're identifying and aware of all the elements in something, a task that for someone who's only seeing, you know, two or three elements and that task seems quite simple For your brain, it's like, I'm having to go into this like overwhelming experience with all of these things happening, and that in and of itself can trigger your alarm system because your brain is like, well, there's too many things to be alert to. It's impossible, actually, to be aware of and alert to all these things. How can I possibly keep track of all these things? Therefore, this must be a dangerous situation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that kind of cognitive processing um, is a really big factor in that.
0: Yeah, and I think too, like sometimes that's where the need for a lot of planning and like wanting to have some sense of control over your environment or, you know, what's going to happen, some sort of predictability is where people will – subconsciously or consciously really try to help their anxiety um but again there's just so many details like you can't plan for absolutely everything you know trust me i've tried (laughs) (laughs) and then when it you know may not work out the way you've planned it it's like oh oh my god implosion or explosion Mm -hmm. um so yeah i definitely think that can be a factor sometimes in that overactive mind too is the planning component well what if this happens oh well what if that happens oh no oh Um, and exactly what you're saying then triggering that fight or flight response Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes as well i i mean this is this could just be me but (laughs) i think really being interested in the details of you know facts and really wanting to know all of the information so you can create that context to really understand something deeply Um, And then sometimes, uh, I guess, wanting to look at things in an unbiased way can mean that you can be willing to look at facts that other people don't want to find out or be willing to look at the really negative things, um, I guess, Uh, like climate change or you know other things that you know maybe other people just want to ignore like it's not happening but yeah like a lot of uh, autistic people will go and research it know all the facts and be like oh well this is a bit shit isn't it (laughs) So, I found, yeah, like actually wanting to know the facts and being aware of, you know, some things that don't have great statistics, um, that can be a source of anxiety and depression sometimes for people as well.
1: So as is the case with basically everything that we experience, um, there's multiple kind of contributors to depression and anxiety. So Monique and I have just been through some of the more biological factors involved in, you know, why neurodivergent individuals can experience high rates of depression and anxiety. But of course there's socialized aspects as well, um, lifestyle aspects, environment aspects. So from the kind of socialization point of view, Obviously, a lot of neurodivergent individuals have experienced, particularly, you know, by the time you get to adulthood, have experienced a really long period of perceived at the very minimum or even real social rejection, feeling like, you know, you're the odd one out, um, feeling distanced, feeling disconnected from people, particularly thinking neurodivergent adults now when Neurodivergence really wasn't understood, right, when we were kids. And so that kind of long history of just trying really hard to be someone that you're not. And that has a couple of different effects on our mental health, how we see ourselves. Firstly, it kind of creates this learned sense of social mistrust, which is very valid given your life experience, but it does make it really hard then to be open and vulnerable and connect with other people. So it's kind of this negative cycle of you feel really mistrustful and really sceptical and really anxious about being vulnerable for very real and valid reasons, but then that energy actually makes it harder For you to then connect with other people right so that's one element of it and then the other thing that i see all the time and i'm sure you do as well monique um in neurodivergent adults coming through the biggest thing is just this incredibly intense inner bully that says you are not good enough there's something wrong with you and when we have that really strong internal core belief that whatever happens the underlying reason for any issue that we're experiencing is, well, there's something wrong with me, right? I'm the problem. That obviously has a really pervasive impact on our mental health and and how we function.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that sense of uh, worthlessness and then really beating yourself up and feeling excessively guilty, you know, about things that may not actually even be your fault or taking over responsibility uh, for things you know, we can see those are uh, one of the criteria for, you know, clinical depression. (laughs) Mm. Um, But yeah, I I see a lot of neurodivergent uh, women and people come through our clinic that just have this chronic experience of not feeling understood and seen and accepted for who they really are and valued for who they are deep down inside um, from their family from their parents sometimes, um, from school, uh, from the teachers, from, you know, the other kids at school, right from primary school through to high school. And then there's just this continual, you know, little T traumas and relational traumas that people experience that, Really add, I think, to the load of anxiety and depression for people over their lifetime. And I think as a result of that, that can really impact the person's beliefs about themselves the beliefs about other people and beliefs about the world. So those are the three types of beliefs that I explore when working with people and looking at, you know, what's increasing your sense of anxiety and depression. And yeah, a lot of the times those come from real valid experiences and and trauma that the person has been through.
1: It's interesting that you're talking about, uh, you know, that feeling of not feeling seen and not feeling connected and chronically feeling misunderstood coming from people in that individual's life, which I think is a really common experience of neurodivergent individuals, as you said. Um, I think too, you know, even at a society-wide level, there really isn't, any kind of society-wide archetype or narrative or space to be neurodivergent. And I think that that is quite easy to dismiss sometimes or feel like, oh, you know, how much of an impact does that really have? But the society-driven messaging that there's no space for you, even if you belong to a really supportive family, because, you know, I think some neurodivergent women might feel like, why do I feel like this I actually had a great family my parents were really supportive you know yeah I didn't kind of fit in exactly at school but it wasn't that big of a deal you know I did have friends that I connected with um, and if that's the case a really big reason for that feeling of not fitting is that kind of broader society-wide lack of a narrative or a story or a purpose or a space to slot yourself into.
0: I think, too, it's the expectations on the person as well. So um, if you are neurodivergent and you've had neurotypical sort of standard expectations placed on you, um, you know, f- throughout different periods of your life, you know, from parents, from school, um, we don't really exist in a vacuum and there's a mismatch between those expectations and, you know, who you are, then, yeah, that could definitely lead to some chronic anxiety and Mm. depression for sure. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point and leads to another really crucial environmental factor, which is that burnout, over-functioning, poor person environment fit if you're constantly functioning or feeling like you have to meet expectations that are just outside of your wheelhouse or just not you or not appropriate for you, um, that causes this kind of continual sense of friction between how your brain wants you to exist and operate and where you feel like you should, in adverted commas, be existing and operating.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, the dreaded shoulds. (laughs) Hello, listeners. We have a request. We want to hear your questions. In our last episode for the season, Michelle and I will be answering listener questions. So if there's anything that you're burning to ask or that you feel you want more information on, email us at ndwomanpod at gmail.com.
1: Get your questions in by November 7th and tune in to our last episode of the season to hear them answered. So how do we actually manage or prevent anxiety and depression? You know, this is a million dollar question. And when we're talking about how do we actually uh, deal with those kind of mental health conditions, I like to first chat about what can we do long term to prevent our emotions getting to that point where it's non-functional? So what can we do to kind of set ourselves up better? And then secondly, what can we do in the moment or, you know, in the short term when we are experiencing those acute levels?
0: So the underlying mechanism behind most of the strategies uh, and things that we're going to talk about in prevention and management of anxiety and depression fall under the polyvagal theory. So it's a theory that came out in kind of like the eighties or nineties by a guy called Stephen Porges. um, And it, it basically talks about the fight flight or freeze response that we've, we've mentioned before in, you know, other episodes of the podcast and in this episode, But it talks about how um, the opposite of fight, flight and freeze in the nervous system is what we call the rest and digest side of the nervous system. Or also, I guess it's the, the side of our nervous system that gets activated when we're feeling safe, safe within our environment, safe with the people that we're in, safe within ourselves. Okay. And when we're feeling connected, with others in our environment, uh, that brings on that feeling of safety, uh, when our actual physical environment is safe, there's no threats of harm or danger in our physical environment and then safety with ourselves, which comes from that self-acceptance and self-compassion. So when we use the polyvagal theory, we talk about, we go down into fight or flight which is that active part of our nervous system if we can't find a solution um, if we can't run away from or run towards the problem our nervous system puts us in that state of freeze and then we want to climb back up that ladder out of freeze back into fight and flight And then hopefully back up into that rest, digest, connection, safety part of our nervous system. And this framework is important to understand because if you notice yourself going down into fight or flight or freeze, it's that safety and connection that can help get you out of it and help bring you back up into that rest and digest side of your nervous system.
1: So when we think about prevention of clinical anxiety and depression, it's really about setting our life up in a way that allows us to consistently function In that kind of connected, safe, rest and digest state. And a really big part of that is setting your life up in a way that allows you to function at your average. And I think Monique and I have talked about this before, but it's essentially this idea that, you know, if we're constantly striving for our best, if we're functioning at our best all the time it's actually statistically impossible to do that consistently because it's your best for a reason so we should only be aiming to be our best like 10 percent of the time right that makes much more sense statistically um and, you know, by virtue of that, we should be our worst 10% of the time as well, right? But most of the time, we wanna be functioning at our average. So that means what does your work schedule look like? What type of work are you involved in? How much contact do you have with other people? Um, what's the sensory environment of your work? Outside of work too, are you ensuring that you're making time to do things that fill up your tank and keep your nervous system ticking over at an average level? Are you getting enough connection both with yourself and to others? Are you resting? And rest is different to sleep. Rest is Being in that kind of soothe emotional nervous system state where we're thinking contentment emotions, loving emotions, gratefulness, all of those emotional states where we feel uh, safe and content to just stay. We're not running towards anything. We're not running away from anything. Um, And the reason that I'm just banging on about this a little bit is because I feel like this is a self-care task that everyone drops the ball on myself included, but I think that's because our society is not set up in a way that allows us to engage in those restful, soothed state activities or that prioritizes that. But it's actually so incredibly essential to maintaining the health of your nervous system. If you think of your nervous system just like a car that needs all of these things to be in that kind of rest, digest, connection state, rest and soothed state emotions are so crucial. So making sure that we're doing things like connection, rest, sleep, physical activity, nutrition, hydration, um, joy and purpose as well is really important. And something that I often like to do is, particularly in times when I feel like, as Monique was saying, you're kind of dropping down into that fight, flight or freeze state, um, is actually get into the habit of taking inventory at the end of each week or at the start of each week and thinking – the week just gone, if I had to rate myself on, you know, a scale of one to five, um, how much rest I got, how much connection I got, how much sleep I got, you know, how did I do on these metrics? What do I need to then prioritize next, next week? Which of these things is kind of running a little bit empty? And how can I prioritize bringing that into my next week? Um, and that's a habit thing, right? And it's not something you need to do all the time. But if you notice that, okay, things are slipping a little bit. I need to put a little bit more effort and thoughtfulness and habit into maintaining my nervous system.
0: I think, yeah, the the physical and and safety um, components are so important. They're really the building blocks of living a lifestyle that promotes mental health and well being. And then, really, if you have limited energy to spend. You really want to try and focus on those building blocks first um, because I know like a lot of neurodivergent people, particularly if they're in a burnout or feeling quite depressed or anxious, going and finding that social connection, meaningful, authentic connections and finding, you know, your tribe that you actually enjoy spending time around. It's not as effortful. You're able to be your authentic self You may not have the energy to do that if you don't take care of those basic sort of self-care things. And you want to balance, yeah, your overall energy in terms of, yeah, socializing and finding those connections. It does take effort and energy, but you're wanting to look at a reciprocal um, arrangement. You know, if you're putting time and energy into people and connections, are you actually getting it back? Are you getting that sense of reward or connection? Are you getting that effort back? I think that's really important. Because for neurodivergent people, we really do need to find our tribe. We need to connect with other neurodivergent people who share our same interests and passions and have the opportunity to info dump or just get together, whether it's online, whether it's face-to-face, um, and do something that's meaningful and enjoyable. I think what comes into that too is being able to have some time to spend on your interests or passions that's so important for well-being for neurodivergent people and it can actually help provide a way of blocking out Um, That constant stream of thoughts or um, just helping give you a break, I guess, from the emotional ups and downs uh, by engaging in something that, you know, really makes you be present and really makes you be grounded and consumes your attention in a positive way.
1: Yeah, we know that. Uh, engagement in interest-based activities is a really helpful uh, emotion regulator for lots of neurodivergent people for those exact reasons. And just on what you were saying there, Monique, about the uh, social stuff and the importance of finding a tribe and the importance of having a reciprocal friendship, a reciprocal relationship, I think one of the ways to do that is to be thinking, does this person that I'm spending time with respect me? and like me. And a lot of times, you know, those things sound so basic, but a lot of times we forget to consider them. Do not spend time with people who don't like you, who are sure, even if they're saying, oh yeah, I really like you. If they're showing or you're feeling or perceiving that they actually are belittling you or making comments or laughing at things that you said or um, making you feel stupid, that's not okay. Mm -hmm. That's not a reciprocal friendship. Mm -hmm. Much better to reduce the quantity of people that you hang out with for quality. And this kind of fits with what you were saying earlier, Monique, around that essential importance of feeling safe with the people around you. And sometimes we might think that that means, oh, feeling like they're not going to physically hurt us. But feeling safe means feeling respected and liked and emotionally safe with the people around you. Do not spend time with people who don't make you feel emotionally safe. Life is too short for that. There's too much joy to be had to waste time in the presence of people that make you feel less than.
0: Um, so, on another note, I, I think especially for autistic people, um, making sure that your your sensory needs are being met um, and just learning uh, interception skills around sensory, detecting sensory overload, I think is really important in managing anxiety and burnout, which can feel a lot like depression as well. A lot of the people who I've worked with who found out at a later age, okay, I'm autistic, have found that when they've put in place a lot of sensory strategies and become aware of their sensory needs and sensitivities, that, you know, they may not experience as many panic attacks anymore, or the overall level of anxiety actually reduces. And no one's ever explained to them before, okay, actually, your sensory, uh, your, your nervous system and your sensory load is so sensitive that actually that can contribute to the high anxiety that a lot of autistic people experience.
1: All of those things are things that we can do preemptively almost, you know, to set ourselves up in a way that makes it less likely that we'll get to that kind of depression, uh, clinical anxiety, burnout point. But if you are currently experiencing those things, we also need a little bit of a toolbox to figure out, well, what can we do when you're having those experiences?
0: Mm -hmm. So with... Depression. um, I think it's really important if you're autistic or ADHD or some other flavor of neurodivergent that you try to figure out, are you actually in burnout or are you depressed? So, the strategies that a neurotypical person in depression uh, that we would usually recommend for them are different to what we would recommend for a neurodivergent person in depression or burnout. So usually for neurotypical people in depression, we recommend that they have a depressed level of activity. You know, they're in bed all day, they're having a lot of trouble getting out of bed, doing their usual activities. We we usually recommend something called behavioral activation, which is doing more. So getting up, exercising more, connecting with friends more, socializing more, engaging in hobbies more. Um, if you're a neurodivergent person though, and you're actually in say a period of burnout because you have been over-functioning and masking for a long period of time, actually doing more may increase your level of burnout and ultimately depression. So it's really important to try and understand where you're at and what's going on for you. Do you need to do more or do you actually need to do less? Mm -hmm. Do you need to rest? Do you need to pull back on your demands and your expectations of yourself? Do you need to delegate more? Do you need to prioritize? Um, and eventually after an extended period of rest, you'll come out of that period of burnout with the associated depression. Mm. And this
1: is where I much prefer the term compassionate action to behavioral activation because behavioral activation kind of sounds like, uh, you know, you're a power ranger or something <laughs> like, <laughs> like powers activate, behaviors activate. Pew, pew. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's very intense. Um, but I really like this idea of compassionate action because it's almost like being that wiser, calmer, kind parent to yourself. That's actually saying, what do you actually need right now? That's going to alleviate the distress and the discomfort that you're experiencing. And sometimes What you actually need is more rest. All of the things that you just said, Monique. And sometimes what you need is, okay, maybe I need to call a friend and tell them how I'm feeling. Maybe I need to schedule a therapy appointment. Maybe I need to go and splash water on my face or wipe my face over with a wet cloth, right? Sometimes what you need is the behavior and sometimes what you need is the rest and compassionate action is the wisdom to know the difference knowing how can I be that kind, wise, calm parent to myself.
0: So touching on compassionate action, uh, I think one component of uh, treatment for clinical depression and anxiety can be medication. There, there are lots of different messages that I think society has given around medication for mental health. Um, some messages are helpful. Some messages may be not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's still a lot of stigma around accessing medication for your mental health. But, you know, what I say to people is actually what the research generally says uh, for depression is, you know, if you have mild depression, therapy strategies you know all of that tends to be enough to help people to treat that clinical level of depression the more moderate to severe depression, you know, if you're having trouble getting out of bed, how are you going to make it to like call a therapist Mm. to make a therapy appointment? Absolutely. Yeah. So sometimes if you're experiencing that more moderate to severe level of clinical depression, um, that's where, you know, maybe going and reviewing potentially accessing medication to help treat your depression can get you to the point where you can then actually engage in some of those other compassionate actions around, you know, getting therapy being able to apply some of those self-help strategies and actually Mm. using your strategies. Same with anxiety. You know, there is a big difference between experiencing mild level of anxiety and really severe anxiety. And, you know, some of the the people that we work with strategies alone aren't actually enough. And people sometimes, you know, part of that self-compassion is going, you know, like I want to experience a break from my symptoms. I actually want to do something that is going to make coping with life easier for me. And there's nothing morally wrong about that. I'm not going to judge myself for needing help in this moment. Um, And of course it's a very personal decision. You know, people need to weigh things up and go speak to a doctor and always consider things like side effects. But yeah, like a lot of people that I work with who are autistic or ADHD or have other neurodiversities, You know, sometimes medication is actually a pretty important part of a mental health care plan for a person. Um, Oh, yeah, for
1: sure. I could not agree more. You know, I think medication is just a tool and this kind of whole stigma around taking medication for mental health. Do you know what has more side effects? Alcohol you know, more people self-medicate with alcohol than take, you know, a prescribed controlled substance from their doctor to manage their mood. So I personally think that medication is a fantastic tool, exactly as you said, Monique, you know, if you're experiencing those really moderate to severe level of intensity of symptoms and what medication can really do is just create a little bit of space so that as you were saying before monique with that kind of polyvagal theory and going down into that fight flight and then down into that freeze mode medication can just lift you up that ladder a little bit so that you've got a bit more capacity to do all of these you know tools strategies etc um i personally don't think that there's anything wrong with taking medication um every single tool that we use to regulate is morally neutral it's just about what's the right dose at the right time and that's true for you know non-medication tools as well right worrying worrying is a tool that we use to regulate right worrying is what are all the possible problems and what are all the possible solutions Um, that's really helpful sometimes but we can overdose on worrying by <laughs> thinking about too many problems and too many solutions so that it becomes unmanageable. I think once we actually start to level the moral playing field of all the regulation tools and strategies that we use, it actually allows us so much more freedom to meet our body and our brain and our mind and our well being where they're at rather than thinking, oh, this is better than that.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, like a lot of the women that I've worked with, uh, particularly ADHD is, you know, a lot of them have found that when they've made that decision for themselves that they would like to trial medication for their ADHD, they, a lot of them have reported that uh, their anxiety, you know, that they've struggled with their whole life has actually really improved The overall ability to regulate their emotions has really improved because the medication is actually um, helping you know those levels of chemicals in their brain uh, balance uh, and, and then regulating that anxiety that racing mind um, and those emotions same for autism there's actually research showing that autistic people may have some lower levels of serotonin than neurotypical people um, and yeah like I've worked with a lot of people who've then gone and tried you know an SSRI that increases you know the level of of serotonin in their brain and that's helped them regulate their anxiety and depression.
1: So we've already talked a little bit about management strategies for anxiety, um, but just to expand on that a bit, one of the things that I think is important to flag is something that absolutely doesn't work for autistic individuals uh most of the time at least is exposure therapy for anxiety so exposure therapy is a really common um therapeutic strategy used to treat anxiety and it's basically the idea that if you just um expose yourself your nervous system your brain your body to the thing that you are anxious about and stressed about your body will then learn that it's actually not dangerous and will learn to actually reduce the amount of adrenaline and cortisol that's released so our threat um, chemicals meaning that you experience less anxiety in those situations so that is a really incredible therapeutic tool for neurotypical people And the reason for that again is because neurotypical people have generalized cognitive blueprints which means that being exposed to something in one situation is then generalized to other situations that have a similar trigger so it's a really effective tool for neurotypicals for people in the spectrum though it tends to just be kind of traumatizing because Autistic people have very detailed, um, specific blueprints of things. So if I'm in one situation and I am exposed to an anxiety trigger and I, you know, learn that it didn't attack me, then great. I learned that it didn't attack me and it's safe in this very specific situation. The kind of generalization or extrapolating that to other situations doesn't really happen. So the really crucial thing when we're trying to balance, I guess, habituation and overstimulation, anxiety being a form of overstimulation, right? Unpredictable environments, feeling anxious. It's always about keeping one foot in your comfort zone, Being thrown out of your comfort zone and doing something that just feels completely terrifying, anxiety provoking, is not actually going to make you more resilient. It's just traumatic. So I think that's a really important thing to know if you're an autistic individual going through therapy to actually be able to advocate for yourself with a therapist and say, you know, look, um, exposure therapy doesn't work for me. That's not going to be helpful for me. Can we try something else mm-hmm. um, rather than feeling like, oh, well, this is what my therapist is suggesting, so I just have to go along with it. Um, likely it probably won't work for you.
0: I think the sensitivity of the neurodivergent person's nervous system plays a role as well. Um, you know, if you have an extremely sensitive nervous system and sensory system, I don't know if any amount of exposure therapy is going to change your ingrained biological nervous system sensitivity. Mm. It's just sort of, yeah, exposing you to that heightened, uh, Overactivation of your nervous system over and over again, which is very stressful and can be traumatic.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I think that's kind of that line between habituation. So becoming habituated and familiar with something to just overstimulation, um, too much information. So, what I've found does work for neurodivergent individuals who are prone to anxiety, um, thinking kind of behavioral management strategies, is a three-pronged approach. (laughs) So, first prong is planning and problem solving. This comes naturally to the neurodivergent mind, so enjoy it. Um, So, this is about thinking, okay, okay. What is going to happen in the situation? Which of the problems that my brain is throwing up for me is A, likely, and B, solvable? So thinking through some of those things, learning as much as you can about the situation, um, and coming up with solutions. The fine line there is drawing that line in the sand when it gets to a point where the things that your brain is generating are A, unrealistic, or B, completely unsolvable. So, you know, you're kind of getting that right dose, right time. Second thing is figuring out what you actually can make predictable in that environment. So, for example, someone who has a fear of flying. For instance, um, I've had some clients who said that they've just paid for the Qantas club membership so that going to the airport, they always know where they're going to go. They know where they're going to go to the bathroom. They know what they're going to eat. They know that they'll have a seat. That's something that they can make predictable in that environment. And then the third behavioral strategy is learning tools to regulate your nervous system in the moment. So these are things like breathing, grounding, sensory strategies, having comfort items.
0: Yeah. So I find that with uh, neurodivergent clients, having something concrete that you can actually hold in your hands is a really good grounding strategy. So think of a sensory kit that you can take with you, whether it's uh, your favorite fidget or stim item, your favorite scent, Um, Your favorite rock, if you're a rock collector or crystal collector like I am. Your favorite sensory uh, fabric that feels really soothing and comforting to you. Um, A weighted item that's uh, providing that weighted sensory feedback. Your earplugs, your headphones, your sunglasses, helping to sort of block out the extra stimulation of that environment. Playing your favorite music playing your favorite show or podcast um, or audiobook, having that familiarity or engaging in something to do with your special interest to, to provide that thought blocking um, distraction or that blocking uh, emotion blocking distraction can be helpful as well for regulation. I think um, to sometimes just n- to normalize having racing thoughts um, or worries as a neurodivergent person is important so sometimes you just notice that Race of thoughts and worries without actually attaching to them or assigning them meaning or value, sort of like not really buying into and believing it, but knowing that, you know, most neurodivergent people have that, you know, 100 or 200 words per minute going through their head of all sorts of different stories that their mind is saying to them. Yeah, that's a great point.
1: And I so agree that normalizing your own experience, it's like, yeah, this is just how my brain works. Oh, there I go again right? Mm-hmm. Even kind of depersonalizing from that and saying, you know, oh, that's my anxiety brain. It's just trying to help me. It's just trying to generate all the possible things that could go wrong. Thank you so much, anxiety brain. Uh Actually, I've got it from here. So, I'm just going to let you run in the background and I'm just going to keep going with what I want to do.
0: Mm, definitely. Yeah. Well, one point I think is, can be helpful too is, uh, what Michelle was saying about that specific blueprint sort of going, being laid down in your brain. If you're autistic, uh, something that people have told me is over their lifetime, um, as they've experienced different situations, different environments, different scenarios playing out and they've gotten more life experience, their blueprint has grown. And that has actually helped them navigate more situations with a lesser amount of anxiety as they've gotten older because they've experienced more things. Things are more predictable. They may not be always controllable, but they're more predictable. And I think, yeah, doing what you can to make the environment predictable um, and knowing that you're going to gain that experience as you get older and older, I, I think is helpful.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast.
0: If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle, the Neurodivergent Woman podcast, or our website, ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.